I'll probably mention this Sunday too, but so Tuesday mornings we always Skype with our pastors. And uh, it's always interesting where there's a, there's a lot of cultural differences, a lot of mentalities that we're not the same on and we have to try to figure them out and, uh, and then figure us out. Dr. Matthews is sitting with me, um, and so there is a, a help there. But he's been in the United States since the 60s, so, um, so there's some breakdowns even with him. And, and uh, there's always something. We were, we're, we're giving him like basic stuff that we would consider um, you know, like hygiene stuff and things like that that would be beneficial. We're always trying to help him with ministry things. And, and, um, I mean, we just talk about a whole gambit of things. And, and they're always asking me. Like they'll send us pictures of, of, the, um, of the building, a tile and all this stuff. One day they sent me pictures of all these tiles, like five white tiles. And they said, pick one. Well, they look exactly the same to me in the pictures. I mean, the pictures, you know. And so I said to them, well, uh, why don't you guys pick it? I think it's a good idea if you pick it. And uh, they always, when it comes to these kind of things, you can always tell when it gets to a point where they don't know what to do for sure. There's a cultural difference here. Um, and I don't, I don't see it coming usually. It surprises me usually when it happens. But this is their default when it gets to this place. Uh, I'll, I'll say, okay, you guys pick the top. It doesn't matter to me. And I always say the same thing. And, and by the way, they, in India, they don't nod their head like this. This is not yes. They do it like this. That means yes. To me, that means I don't know. Right? And so, so I, I'm like, pick the tile. I don't, you know, I don't care. You are the man of God. You pick the tile. I'm like, that one. Because they don't look any different to me. I'm like, okay, all right. You know, so, <clears throat> so this happened this week. So I'm sitting there, and, and um, one of our guys, Santosh, is, um, his, he's married. His wife is pregnant. She's, gonna, she's due, like, end of December. And uh, so we've been praying for them, and she, she's been having a little bit of complications and some things, and so have been praying. And so this week I asked him, I said, of... We'd like to pray for uh, Ruby, and we'd like to pray for the baby. Have you decided on a name for the baby? We can pray for the baby by name. And he said, you're the man of God. You choose the name. <laughs> and I said, what? Huh? What? <laughs> so then I make a joke, right? I make a little joke. I'm like, what if it's a girl? Because I'd like to name it Scott after me. What if it's a girl? He's dead serious. He said, you need to choose two names, one for male, one for female. And so I look over at Nur, because I'm like, I need a little help here. I look over at Nur, and Nur says, yeah, you need two. You need a name for a female, you need a name for a male. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. So I'm taking suggestions or something. I don't know. I don't want to name this guy's kid. But that's, but that's a cultural thing. I'm, I'm, he's, I'm his elder. I'm his, I'm his pastor. I'm his spiritual leader. I'm his, I'm the man of God. And so, <clears throat> I don't know. That one threw me. I, I, I needed some help from, I did not expect no either. Like, yeah, you need two. I'm like, no, no. Help me out here. Yeah, he was. He's like, one, two. It's not that hard. Just two. You need two. So, all right. <laughs> Woo. I'm excited about that. One other thing I did, I got some uh, headphones. Yesterday I got some headphones. I've been wanting them for a long, long time, and I found this guy online. He gave them to me half price. These are uh, very nice noise-canceling Bose headphones. 
very nice for airplane rides. That's really, in my head, I'm thinking India, 48 hours of flying. I need silence. So I put them on last night. I was trying. I'm sitting with my phone. You can, you can sit all the noise rejection, all these different things. So I'm sitting all this stuff. And uh, Linda comes walking in. I'm laying in bed, and I'm, and I'm looking at it. Linda comes walking in, and she said, and I thought, worth. <laughs> this is a good buy right here. Got myself a good buy. <laughs> so... <clears throat> You paid for those. Well, you pulled the money out of the account. That's not paying for them. Yeah, there's something wrong. I can't hear my wife. Said no guy ever. All right, so. <clears throat> All right. Whew, I can't breathe. All right, let's go back. Just briefly, I want to hit two places in Nehemiah 4, and then we're going to jump forward into Nehemiah 5. <clears throat> I have, um, I've really been enjoying um, this, um, th- this series. I, I know I keep saying that, but it's just been really enlightening for me in a lot of ways and really digging through the scripture and looking. And I've got a bunch of other scriptures like in other places of the Bible that, that um, correlate, and I've always got these written down. But usually when it actually gets here, I, I leave them out because I want us to, st- I want us to you know, Focus in on Nehemiah and this stuff. I mean, I'm going to throw a couple in there tonight and things like this right here. Everything we need is <clears throat> in Nehemiah. So Nehemiah chapter 4. So um, in, let's, let's uh, go to um, verse 18. Now, they've been building the wall. Remember, it's already half built up. Uh, they've got the stuff all done, and they're still getting attacked by all these other guys. When he gets to this point, he says in verse 18, all the builders had a sword belted to their side. Remember, there's somebody standing beside them, and they switch off, and some of them are guarding, some are building, that kind of stuff, and they're doing this, and they're, and they're, and they're getting, you know, they've been pretty motivated. It says that they've been um, exuberant about it, excited about the work, that kind of stuff. All the builders had a sword belted to their side. The trumpeter stayed with me to sound the alarm. Then I explained to the nobles and officials and all the people, the work is very spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Now, this is, this is big. When you hear the blast of the trumpet, <clears throat> rush to wherever it is sounding, then our God will fight for us. Th- this is, according to a couple of um, uh, writers and theologians, this is probably the biggest struggle that the church has, is the, is the mentality mentioned right here. In fact, um, um, his mind just... His, Name just left me. He wrote Bait of Satan. John Bevere. Uh, John Bevere says this is the biggest thing that we do wrong in the church. This is the biggest aggression that, that we have in the church. Is um, We do the opposite of this. He says we're all widely separated from each other. We're exposed to the enemy. And he says when you hear the blast of the trumpet, rush to wherever that trumpet is sounding, and then our God will fight for us. And the way that the natural church thinking in America is, is we will stay in our isolation and we will fight for ourselves. Instead of, let the Holy Spirit call us together and then we don't actually have to fight. If we're all together, we don't actually have to fight. 
Now, there's a bunch of scriptural stuff, Old Testament to New Testament, that, that backs us up. Where, where two or three are gathered in his name, the Lord will be with them. And, there, and that whole context is the Lord will answer their prayers. And we see this, um, we see this mentality. Hebrews 10.26 says, <clears throat> no, 10.25 says, um, don't, forsake, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. This is one of those things um, that, that we really, we, we, so, so, and I, I talk about this sometimes. I don't want to belabor this point tonight, but people always ask me, do I have to go to church to be a Christian? I don't think you have to go to church to be a Christian. Again, I guess, I guess if you think that way, okay. But why don't you want to? Why? What, what about inside of you says, I don't need the family of God to be part of the family? I don't need the kingdom of God to be part of the kingdom. Tom? I agree with that. And I believe that's what it's saying. Now, there's not actually a sentence that says that. Um, I mean, this is pretty close. But, but I agree with that. How, how can you stay? All the scriptures that talk about, you know, it, it says, well, can the eye say to the hand, I don't need you? Can the foot say to the elbow, I don't need you? That kind of thing. And we always think about that in, in correlation with service and connection. And those. But what about just, just serving God, just growing together? The hand can't live separately. It'll die. It will die separate from the body. And, and we've, got, we've got mentalities that are constantly saying, I can be separate from the body and be okay. This is one, somebody was asking me about this. Oh, when I was in Texas last week, they were asking, there was a pastoral couple that, from Louisiana that, that just became part of our board. And they were saying, so I get the same questions, specifically from people in the South, like from Texas South and over in all the Bible Belt states. They'll always ask me, what's it like to pastor, to pastor in Colorado where there's marijuana? Like, like nobody in their communities are smoking pot. Like nobody is. And I said, well, we ask them to put it out before they come in the sanctuary. <laughs> I mean, isn't that what they're thinking? Isn't that what they're like, don't, don't you, don't you? Okay, so, so I was talking about, you know, different ideas about this. And we were talking about connection and, and, uh, and service to God and all the things that are involved with that, and, they, and then they said something about, well, isn't there like a lot of parachurch organizations in Colorado Springs? I said, yeah, the, the all like seventy something percent, seventy plus percent of Christian parachurch organizations are based out of Colorado Springs. So one guy asked me, "Is that intentional?" And it is. And some of you may not know this, but that's actually very intentional. It didn't happen by accident. Um, there was a handful of people that got together. One of them is a guy that started um, where you work. Uh, one Child Matters, but before Bethesda Ministries, the guy who started Bethesda Ministries, um, and Dale Beggs right here in our church, and a couple other guys, they got together and they started buying a bunch of properties and doing some things and building buildings and inviting Christian organizations to come and, and plant here and build here for cheaper prices and stuff. And when that started happening, you know, then, you know, got one organization and five other organizations come off of that. It was very intentional. It wasn't accidental. They said, well, what is it like pastoring in that kind of setting where everybody around you is saved. I said, well, let me give you some statistics. 
there are more people that work at Christian parachurch organizations in Colorado Springs than attend church in Colorado Springs. Right? You understand what I just said? Now, that doesn't include, how many of you here work for a parachurch organization? Raise your hand. One, two. Put your hand down, Lou. It's not really. You, you work for the man. So we got two. Now, there's a reason why I'm saying this. Statistically, look here. That's about, I would say that's pretty accurate for most churches. It's a small percentage of people in that church work for a parachurch organization. And how come we have more people working for parachurch organizations that are going to church when there's a small percentage of people that go to church that are part of parachurch organizations? That's exactly it. I explained that to these guys. I said, do you realize percentage-wise, a very small percentage of these people that work at parachurch organizations go to church? They're encouraged to go to church. Oh, yeah. Right? I thought you said they were encouraged not to. Well, I need to talk to somebody. <laughs> yeah, of course they're encouraged to, 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 to do this. But they think, well, I have a chapel in a week, so I don't have to go or whatever. But, but here's the thing, guys. At some particular point, you're not a healthy part of the body if you're not a healthy part of the body. There's no other way to get around that. You, you need to be part of the community. You need to be doing, and this is another big one that is even another major percentage when you break this down, of how many people actually engage and do something for the kingdom of God. Inside of the church or outside, that's not important, okay? Um, in fact, I believe that most of what you do for the kingdom of God is going to be outside the church. Not, not, I'm saying in, inside the walls. But are, are we doing stuff? Why is this so important? Because you will not mature properly if you don't. That's how simple it is. You just won't mature properly. You won't grow the way that you're supposed to. You, you ever had a skin tag? <clears throat> you know what a skin tag is? Okay? If you don't know what a skin tag is, I don't like you. So a skin tag is like, if it's, like sometimes where you have a skin that rubs together, the skin will come out and, and it starts a little bump, and pretty soon it's a little, it's a little um, looks like a little mole or something, but it's, but it's living. It's a living thing. You know how you kill skin tags? Well, besides, my mother used to make me cut them off of her with a razor. So, again, aha. But you, you can just twist it up and, and uh, cut the circulation off. Just cut the circulation off and it'll die. And that's what we're doing intentionally as Christians sometimes. We're cutting our circulation off from the rest of the body and we're dying. And, by the way, I believe that you can actually go to church and pretty much go to church every weekend and, and do the exact same thing. You can sit in a church building week after week after week and, and be cut off, spiritually, emotionally, relationally cut off. Because you have to choose to plug into the body. You have to choose to plug in mentally and spiritually to, to life. And you can, you can distance people. You can disassociate from, from the life flow. Not, not do anything, not connect, not, not be involved. And I, and I don't believe growing means you just get stuff. Remember what I've, I've been saying the last few months about you, the, the only way that you can truly grow is if you become a funnel to the Holy Spirit has to flow through you to others. The grace has to flow through you to others, those kind of things. It can't just flow to us. And so even just attending and absorbing and getting blessed is the way we say it. 
Guys, there's a lie to that. You have to engage. You have to do something for the kingdom of God. You've got to be involved. You know, the, the, um, we, we, we fought the Baptists for years about the only way you get saved is grace. It's all it's, it's grace. It's not about works. It's not about works. It's grace. I agree with that. Getting saved is all about grace, and it's not about works. But, but being a Christian is about works, and it's about doing. And it's about engaging. It's about ministering. You cannot continue to grow in God if you are not doing, engaging. Faith without Works is like a screen door on a submarine. Okay. That was an old song years ago. A guy named uh, Rich Mullins. He's dead now. First time I ever heard that song, his very first concert, Rich Mullins' first concert ever. He opened, I mean not his first concert, but at the, after his national label. He opened up for Russ Taff. And he sang that song. He walks out, sits down at the piano, barefooted, torn up shirt. Just start singing. And I thought, who is this dude? <laughs> and he's saying, uh, faith without works are like screen door on a summary. Something, something, something. Don't really mean a thing. It's a great song. All right. <clears throat> then our God will fight for us. If you are together with other believers and you're growing and developing, God will fight the battles. You don't have to. God will fight the battles for you. God has never intended for us to fight the battles. He wants, you to, he wants you to fight with him. He gives us the sword of the Spirit, but what is the sword of the Spirit? It's his word. It's not even our word. It's his word. You're fighting with his words, not, not us. His word is the sword. In, in fact, this is one of the things that I think we kind of misunderstand. I did for a long time. When it talks about Jesus at the, at the Battle of Armageddon, Satan convinces a lot of people on the planet to fight against the Lord. And, uh, and it says that he will come riding through out of the clouds on a white horse, and it describes all, you know, fire out of his eyes and all this other stuff, and that he will fight the battle, and that, uh, that we will be riding with him. And I used to think to myself, that's right, Jesus, give me a sword, I'll fight alongside you. And then one day, it's like the sword, or the, the Holy Spirit just kind of stopped me and said, do you really think that Jesus is going to let you get in that fight and mess that thing up? He doesn't need me fighting. He'll fight. He'll take care of this. I, uh, this, this story always comes to my mind. Um, so <clears throat> this was a long time ago. Jonathan, my oldest, he was about six or seven. I would say at this time, and um, I was in the hospital. I wasn't in the hospital. I went to visit somebody in the hospital, and I visited this lady in the hospital that had been, um, she'd been having an affair, and I go up to the hospital to see her because she was sick, she's, she's pregnant, and uh, this, her husband is, is there, and while I'm there, the guy that she cheated with, the father of her child, comes into the room. I'm like, what are you doing here? You don't need to be here. And she said, well, I invited him. Stupid, stupid, stupid. So her grandmother is staying there too, 70-something-year-old lady. And, um, and I told him, I said, you need to leave. This is not okay for you to be here. And you can't tell me to leave. And I said, yeah, I can tell you to leave. I can make you leave. I can watch. I'll make you leave. And so we, we go outside, we go into the, um, 
like a waiting room across the hall. Me, my three children, this guy, and the older lady. We go across the hall. And I'm talking to the guy. I'm like, you don't need to be here. She invited me. You don't need to be here. Her husband is standing there. You've already caused problems. That's my child. Exactly. You've already caused problems. You need to leave. This is not okay. He starts getting belligerent. Well, you can't make me do whatever. And I'm done. You know, I'm done. I'm like, I will make you. If you try to walk back in that room, you won't get in there. You understand that? You can't make me. Well, the old lady's standing right behind me, and she starts praying very loudly in the spirit, very loudly, like screaming. And at first I'm like, why are you doing, I can't, why, you know, my kids are playing, Jonathan's on the other side of the room, and Jonathan slowly, he gets his back up against the wall and slides all the way around the room, scooting like this on the wall, right? Because he recognized, Isaac and Emily, they don't have a clue what's going on. They're just playing with these little, right, like right here. And so he slides all the way around, comes all the way like this, slides right in front of me and goes, He's seven. And, and I just kind of noticed this. I'm like, this is not helping. You are going to cause more problems. Because now I'm more going to be worried that you get hurt, which is going to get me hurt. And so he's like this, and, I'm, and this guy starts to get really belligerent. He starts to kind of shove me a little bit. And when he does that, the lady behind me, grabs my belt right back here, grabs the back of my belt, gets a good handhold, and starts swinging at this guy around me like this. So she's pulling on me and swinging and pulling on me and praying in spirit as loud as she possibly can. And Jonathan's standing like this in front of me, and I'm trying to take care of this situation. And I'm thinking, if this guy swings, he's taking three people out at the same time. This is the picture that I always think about when I think about God wants to do the fighting. We just get in the way with our own stuff, our silliness, all the things that are, that are involved with us. We get in the way instead of saying, Lord, I put on the armor, I've got the sword, I'm going to stand here. Ephesians 6, 10, be strong in the Lord. When you've tried everything else, stand. I'm going to stand here, but Lord, you're going to fight. And when we get together through our prayer, the Lord will fight for us. We don't have to do the fighting. But we've got to learn how to do that. We've got to learn how to be passive and, and sit back. I don't mean passive in our attitude. We need to be praying. We need to be intentional and active in that. But don't get out there and try to figure it out yourself. Don't get out and try to fight it yourself. We need to get together with other Christians. We need to trust each other, trust the Word of God, trust the kingdom of God, and then God will do the fighting. But when you think you can stay out there by yourself, you will be destroyed in the process. You just will be. <clears throat> yes, sir. Yeah, I think there's a few places in Scripture where it talks about this a little bit. 
Um, some of the writings, if you go to uh, some of the writings that Paul writes in Romans, specifically when you can tell he's getting toward the end of Romans, there, there, you can, maybe, I don't think I'm, I, I haven't heard like people talking about this, but to me this is what I'm reading and I'm hearing from the scripture, is it feels like that Paul is realizing he's toward the end of his time and it seems to be a lot more isolated than it was. And you'll see, even in some of the epistles, he'll say things like, well, send so-and-so to me, you know, do this kind of thing. And so there's a, there's a little bit of an isolation and loneliness, it appears. I think that's what he's saying. And I think there's a couple of things that happen. One is, um, God has the ability to, to bring people to us, and even, in, even if they're not necessarily Christians, that can be connecting with us. Okay, That's one thing. But I also believe that God just has the ability to let the Holy Spirit be that that uh, comforter, truly is a comforter. You know where he says Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That there is that, that element that we don't have the rest of the church. We don't have this kind of stuff. There is not, there is not the body of Christ around us. Now here's also, that's the on-ground intentional side of it. But I think there's, a, there's another element to this that I think that Christians around other places of the world are supposed to take this pretty serious and pray for those people. And that's what Paul requests too, if you'll think about it, is pray for me. This is not, he's not just saying this, he needs it. You'll, you'll hear, you know, people will say, I can feel your prayers and stuff like that. You talk to people that are truly, I said, I was thinking about this, um, this uh, uh, pastor Brunson that was in Egypt. And, uh, and I've talked to many people around the world that have spent years in prison because of their their um, faith in Jesus Christ, and how they'll say, I could feel people praying, I could sense people praying, the Holy Spirit would show me people praying. Guys, there's, real tr- there's true power to that, it's not, it's not just words we're saying, there's true power. How does that work if you're the person that's isolated? I think there has to be a point where you do trust in the Lord. Try to, try to build your, your, um, the, the family of God near you by witnessing to people, but that's not always that easy. It's not always, you know, you just go down to the local coffee shop witnessing somebody. You might get put in jail for that. And so you do a lot of praying. You seek the Holy Spirit. You let him be that comforter. And then our responsibility is to, to take that pretty serious too. Think about these things. Pray for these things. Pray for people. And the Lord will do it. I mean, you just, you just you hear stories of people saying the Holy Spirit would visit me. I could tell that Jesus would walk into that cell with me. Now, the other side of that is also uh, sometimes they just feel very, very alone, very alone and very isolated, too. That's, that's reality also. Okay. <clears throat> All right, let's go to chapter 5. A lot of cool stuff going on here in chapter 5. <clears throat> okay, so about this time, some of the men and their wives raised it. Somebody saying something? About this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. That is a very discouraging sentence. Right before it, it talks about how they're standing together. One's carrying a sword. One's carrying a spear. They're, they're doing their carrying swords in their belt. They're working with enthusiasm. Remember, we've seen that twice. You know, working with enthusiasm. They're excited. They built the wall halfway up, all this kind of stuff. Sambalat, Tobiah, and Gershom are, are attacking them. I mean, verbally attacking them, all this other kind of stuff. And it seems like... Um, Sambala and Tobiah um, seem to lose steam. They're not, getting the, they're not being effective. 
The people are building the wall. The enemy is not being effective at keeping them from building the wall. And then all of a sudden, once it seems to die down out there that Satan is attacking, that Sanballat and Tobiah and Gershom are attacking verbally and, and getting people to harass them, when that seems to kind of quiet down, and that's what we see through chapter 4, is it seems like they got the sword, they got the spirit, and it seems like it's kind of quiet down. The very next sentence says, about this time, some of the men and their wives raised a, a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. How, how explanatory is that of the church? Guys, we do this. In fact, I've said this for years, <clears throat> that, that uh, the, the, uh, my focus of how to develop and build a church, and it's been very unique for me here in Briargate because it's not happened the exact same way that I'm used to in the last two church I pastored is we get a lot of people saved, and a lot of people start getting saved, and a lot of people start witnessing other people, and they're getting saved, and you grow by people getting saved. Right? There's a few basic things that happen when that happens. One is, people don't fight so much. Why? Any ideas? Yeah, you're kind of seeing it on the same team because you're, there's, a, there's something happening. I mean, theoretically, any church is on the same team. But why, why doesn't that happen when people aren't getting saved? Because we focus on a lot of other things. It's, it's been a few years since I've used this example. But, um, but I'll just explain it rather than help, let you guys help me out with this. But if, if, if I get about 10 of you up here and we make a circle, and the entire time um, I'm speaking, the, the 10 of you are in a circle facing each other, and let's say I, I do that every single service for a year, and the same 10 people are in the circle and they're facing each other during the circle, those 10 people will eventually start fighting with each other, be irritated with each other, aggravated, those kind of things. Because all they've done for a year is sit and stare at each other. And you start noticing every flaw, every little thing about those people. Every negative, every anything. During worship, you start realizing who can sing and who can't sing. Who has rhythm, who doesn't have rhythm. Who wants to clap at the wrong times and who doesn't. I mean, lots of stuff. And you start becoming picking on, picking on, picking on. You can take that same 10 people and, and turn them outward and be bringing new people constantly in around them, and the entire dynamic is different. They won't pick on each other in that context. And they're constantly being focused and absorbed, absorbing the people that are interacting around them. They're new and all the different things with that. And that's the concept of a church that really is about the lost getting saved. There's a newness, there's a freshness, there's an excitement. Um, there is um, the, the new people that are getting saved are new, and there's some excitement involved with that. When they are, when, when you've got a lot of new converts coming in the church, you do have problems. Every church is going to have problems because they're filled with people. But when you have new converts coming in, the problems are different. The problems are not, what is the color of the carpet? Is it hot or cold enough in here? Is the sound system too loud or too quiet? Oh, we sing those songs over and over and over. Oh, we only sing new songs. 
Did you know I have actually heard that in the exact same week? I'm getting tired of these songs. We only sing new songs. I'm like, both of you can't be right. And, but the reason that those things can be issues in churches is because new converts are not coming in. When new converts are coming in, the problems are different. You have to say things like, um, we don't want you smoking pot in the sanctuary. Okay? Uh, we would like you to wear clothes that cover everything. You can, you can, you'll start having those kind of issues. Why, why, you know, I, I have had this conversation with people before. Um, you know, coming to church drunk is not going to be beneficial for your relationship with Jesus. And literally, the answer would be like, really? All right. Like, I just gave him the, the coolest information ever. All right? Those, those are the kind of things. Those are the kind of, of stuff. New people constantly coming in. And, um, and they're sitting in your seat. Right? I have watched people before. Across the building, come in and, and you know, they don't even notice somebody's sitting. They just come in and just start to sit down. They're like, somebody is sitting. And, and I'll watch them and see. What are you going to do with this? You know? When I was growing up, I watched my mom ask somebody to get up and move one time. Um, I usually sit there. If you could just move. I'm sitting there as a kid thinking, really, Ma? Really? As it's a different atmosphere when you're saying there's a newness, there's a freshness, and, and there's not a picking on each other kind of thing. When they've, been getting, when they've been doing this a while and the enemy is no longer attacking, they're thinking war, they're thinking attacking, but the enemy's no longer attacking, so now they attack each other. We read it again. About this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. And they go down through this stuff, and the stuff is not as important. I mean, it has some bearing, but they were saying, we have such large families, we need more food to survive. Others are saying, we have mortgaged our fields, vineyards, and homes to get food during the famine. Others have said, we had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. It might have escaped you. We have such large families, we need food. We've mortgaged our fields, vineyards, and homes to get food. We have had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. Who are they borrowing the money from? Their fellow Jews. Now, it's supposed to be everybody is all together, working together, shoulder to shoulder, uh, building this wall. But while they're building the wall, instead of taking care of their crops and everything else, somebody is out there taking care of crops and selling that food to their brothers and sisters. And then when they run out of money to buy food, then they begin to loan them money or buy their property or something else. Because this is not okay. They're using the building of the kingdom of God, the building of the walls, the building of the city, they're using that against their own brothers and sisters to make money while, while they're sacrificing to build the walls. Which, by the way, they're probably going to live in when they get attacked. 
But they're uh, scamming their brothers and sisters in the process with this. So what happens? They said, we belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs. Yet we have to sell our children into slavery to get enough money to live. At first they were like, we can't feed our kids. And they said, so we sold them. This whole thing is upside down. They're not, they're, every bit of it, every bit of their thinking from, from, the, from the people that are building and the outsiders that are not building. We've already sold some of our daughters. They sell daughters first. And we are helpless to do anything about it, for our fields and vineyards are already mortgaged to others. Now, Nehemiah, when I heard their complaints, I was very angry. I'm glad that Nehemiah got angry here. This is, this is one of those things that um, is, is always interesting to me when it comes to the, um, to the kingdom of God and to church and things like that, and even to, to who I am as a pastor. Sometimes I will get very upset. I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to, but when I see sometimes church at Briargate, sometimes what we're doing, but the kingdom of God in a general sense, I get upset at this stuff. Our, the church in the United States of America needs a major, major overhaul. We need a major move of God. We need to chase out all the laziness and deadness that's come along. And we also need to change out all the hyper um, fakeness that's come along. That it, it's all about the concerts and the lights. And then you got the other crowd that it's, I don't care if, if God literally stepped in front of me. I'm not going to let God move on me. And those two basic ideas are, are, have invaded the American church. And it's very, very um, dangerous and it's very superficial. I mean, you can just take some basic things, guys, basic things. Why is our country the way that it is? Now, I know I said this a, a few weeks ago. The whole Kavanaugh hearings really bothered me in a lot of ways. Not just because Senator Feinstein and the other jerks that were attacking that man, not just because they did that, but because we live in a country that that is okay, and the other side of the aisle, for the most part, just sat there and watched it. We are we are horrible country because I'm I'm saying it because of that in that context. I wouldn't I wouldn't have sat there and let them keep doing that. I would have stood up and said, no, you're, you're not allowed to talk to him that way. You're not allowed to do that. And if you don't have evidence, shut up, sit down, go away. We don't need to hear from you. You're a liar. But they just sat there. This is the same country that we have abortion is running rampant. LGBT junk is, is running rampant through our country. Immorality in almost every single sense is, is running rampant through our country. Sex with just anybody, anytime you want, is just running rampant through our country. But here's my issue with all of that. that. Where is the church in all of this? Oh, we're having our little parties in our buildings. And we're, we're dancing, singing, and shouting in our buildings. And society is dying. They're crashing and burning outside of our doors. Or the other side is we're not dancing and 
having a party inside our doors. We're not doing anything. We're just sitting there like lumps on a log. Somewhere, somewhere there has to be some change. There has to be something. And part of the deal with me is, and I don't want to go too much into this. I didn't say all this to make it a gripe session for me, but I'm going to a little bit, is it's amazing to me. This has happened to me more since I've been in this church than my last two churches combined, which would have been about 16, 17 years worth. People that will come and tell me, Pastor, you just get too upset when you're speaking. You need to be nicer. You need to be nicer. You know the first thing that goes through my mind when I hear that? I need to be less nice to you. Because you're not listening. And I constantly have this. You need to not be so, so upset about it. You need to not be so critical. We're all doing okay. We're all doing all right. You think I'm making that up. I hear that. We're all doing... this. Somebody said this to me one time. Here. We're all serving Jesus. We're all witnessing all the time. We're all doing everything we can. You need to be nicer. Okay. So, I love it that Nehemiah gets upset here. You know why? Because he should have been upset. People were treating people horribly. Their attitudes were wrong. They were sinning. They were attacking each other. And he got upset and he said, this is not okay. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I was saying. When, um, when somebody, guys, I've been doing this for 28 years. When somebody comes and says something like that to me, I don't, it doesn't affect me at all. I, no, that's not true. It irritates me. <laughs> and I go and gripe at Linda for a few hours later about it. But I'm not, I'm not changing. I am not changing. I know who I am. I know what direction that God has told me to go. I know how he has designed me. I mean, I've had over the years, not, not as much here, but sometimes, okay, here too. But I've had people tell me, you shouldn't use humor behind the pulpit. Church is not a place for humor. Like, that's why you're like you are. I mean, do you understand you don't use humor? Like, that's somehow a not a God thing? God was a funny guy. He still is. He hadn't lost it. Jesus was funny. He hadn't lost it. Somewhere. All right, I don't wanna, I'm going down this road too much, aren't I, hon? Am I going down this road too much? <clears throat> okay, so usually she's over back there going. All right, so here's the thing. Nehemiah gets upset. I like that. He says, when I heard their complaints, I was very angry. I was very angry. Remember in Zechariah when, um, when God takes Zechariah through the, uh, through the temple? He's flying him through the temple, and he says, I'm going to put my mark on the foreheads of all the people that are following me. Right? This is what he says. This is what determines that. You guys know what the definition is? He says, this is how we will know who is following me. I will put my mark on their forehead. But how does he qualify that? He said, this is how we will know. 
He says, because they will be um, disgusted by or deeply offended by sin. It didn't say that they will stop sinning. It says that they, as, no, as people that don't sin, are deeply offended even when they see sin. Even when it's just there. They will be deeply offended. Put, put my mark on their forehead and I won't destroy them. And anybody that does not have a mark will be destroyed. But you understand that's why, that's why uh, the Satan, the Antichrist, uses a mark on the forehead. He's copying God. He always copies. He's not a creator. He says, I was very angry. After thinking it over, I spoke against these nobles and officials. And I told them, I spoke out against the people that were in charge and control, had the money and all the influence. I spoke out against them. Because why? They were wrong. That's how simple it was. Because they were wrong. All right, he said, you are hurting your own relatives by charging the interest when they borrow money. Then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. At the meeting, I said to them, we're doing all we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who have had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners, but you're selling them back into slavery again. We've done everything again. Remember 70 years before this, they were brought out of slavery and brought to um, Israel and, and rebuilt the temple, and they're trying to worship. Now they need to rebuild the walls. They had been rescued from slavery, and the very people that were rescued from slavery were putting other people, their own brothers and sisters, back into slavery. I, I was thinking about this the other day. <clears throat> there's, um, there's a church. I've, I've been acquainted with this church o- over the years. It's in Denver. Um, used to be a similar God. It's not a similar God now. At, at, somebody that I know that is an alcoholic went to this church. And they said, I can no longer go back to that church. Because they were at an outreach. And this church brought kegs out and opened up the kegs for the outreach. They had an open bar at the outreach. And this guy said, I'm an alcoholic. I can't do that. And I thought, when a church gets to a point where they're helping somebody with addictions be destroyed, they've crossed a line. I don't care how you describe that theologically. You have crossed a line. And it's not okay. And, and we, we argue in the church, well, is drinking okay, is not okay, or whatever the case is? If you're having the discussion, and it's causing somebody that has an addiction to be worsened, let that be a clue to you. You might add that to the discussion. And we have these goofy arguments in the church. You're bringing people back into slavery that were rescued out. You're bringing them back into addictions when they were rescued out. And we, and we coat this over as okay because we're all mature Christians and we've learned how to deal with these goofy, addictive things. No, we haven't. We're just, we're just playing pagan, humanistic games is all we're doing. And we're bringing them back into slavery. Bringing them back into this stuff. And so he said, then I pressed further. What you are doing is not right. 
Should you not walk in the fear of our God in order to avoid being mocked by enemy nations? This is another thing about sometimes the stuff that the church does. The average person in society knows it's not legit. Have you ever, have you ever come across things like that? The average person in society knows it's the, chur- the church is playing games in some areas. Even though they're not Christians, they know churches shouldn't be doing this stuff. And yet we do it. And he says, you're being mocked. I myself as well, my brothers and my workers, have been lending the people money and grain. But now let us stop this business of charging interest. You must restore their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and homes to them this very day. Repay the interest you charged when you lent them money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. They replied, we will give back everything and demand nothing more from the people. We will do as you say. And then... He says, then I called, I'm sorry, it moved. Then I called the priest and made the nobles and officials swear to do what they had promised. Now, I do think this is a pretty amazing moment, okay? I've seen this at different times, but I've also not seen this. Um, He gets up and he says, this is what has to happen. We got to stop doing this. Let's repent. Let's get our lives, our minds right, and let's stop hurting people in the process. And what did they do? They all said, you know what? You're right. We're sorry, we're going to stop this right now. Let's get this right. That's pretty cool. That doesn't happen very often, right? Human nature doesn't let this happen. We fight against this. And guys, here's part of the reason that I'm saying this, is when the Holy Spirit comes to you and says, remember, Nehemiah is, is, is being the, the Holy Spirit for us in this story. When the Holy Spirit comes to you and says, you are doing this wrong, change it. Just do that. Just change it. Just deal with it and change it. Man, that is so difficult sometimes. Now, I would say, I'm using myself as an example. I would say most things, I'm like, okay, God, I'm going to change it. You, you can. But there, there's just this handful of things that dig deeper into our soul, attitudes, uh, unforgiveness, you know, the, the bigger ones. And the Holy Spirit can come to us and say, do this. And man, we can come up with every reason why not to, yeah? Every excuse. And, it, and, the, and the thing is, is, it, is we can actually convince ourselves. You guys heard me say this maybe? I had a great uncle when I was a kid that used to always show up around my grandparents' Thanksgiving, holidays, all kinds of stuff. And this guy would talk about all the, the, you know, the homes he had in Florida and California and, and Italy and all this stuff and, and the yachts that he had and the airplanes and all this other kind of stuff. And one day, I was like a teenager by this time, I said something to my dad about Uncle So-and-so. And I said, what about Uncle So-and-so? I haven't seen him in a few years. And that guy is loaded. My, my dad looked at me kind of funny and he said, well, I guess we just never told you. I said, told me what? He said, that guy was making all that up. He doesn't have any of that stuff. He's just a bum. And then, you know, my my brain, I'm thinking back. Yeah, he did, like, drive up in a 1975 Ford Falcon, you know, and his his clothes were kind of tattered. And I'm thinking, why did I buy into this? I think part of it is because I wanted to. So I asked my dad about this. I said, well, then why would he keep telling all those lies knowing they're not true? And then my dad said something that literally... It changed the way that I began to look at people. He said, oh, I think he believes it. 
That made no sense to me. He is creating the stories. He's telling the lies. My dad said, oh, I think he believes it. And I asked him, I said, you really think he believes it? Yeah, I really do. Now, that's scary. But I have found over the years I can do the exact same thing. I can give excuses and reasons as to why I won't let God work on this or change this or work on this area of the wall in my life or fix this or whatever, and I will come up with reason after reason after reason instead of saying, okay, Holy Spirit, do what you want to do. It is so difficult sometimes to say, Lord, I repent. And I'm not saying in front of other people. I'm just saying between you and the Lord. Nobody else has to know anything about what, what, what this is about. But for us to just get before God who knows everything and not, and not just get it right. Just repent. Just change the stuff. Just let him get in there. Or even not in a sin way, but just something that he's trying to work on us with. And saying, please let me work on this. Please let me deal with this. And we come up with every reason why not to. We just avoid, deflect. Instead of saying, Lord, here I am. Do what you want. Do what you want to do. As I know, it's difficult for us. It is so difficult. Not, not in most things. Most things were good. But there's those, there's those few things in our life. In fact, in Psalms, it talks about... Um, that the Lord will uncover my secret sins, my hidden sins. Well, I, I think that uh, those sentences apply even when it's not sins, just hidden issues, my secret issues. Not even sins, just stuff, baggage, things. So, <clears throat> um, I shook out the folds of my robe and I said, if you fail to keep your promise, may God shake you like this from your homes and from your property. Can you imagine me getting up on a Sunday and saying something like that? Taking, taking my coat off. Shaking my coat and saying, if you don't get this right, God is going to shake you out of your jobs and your homes and your families, just like I'm shaking this coat. You know how many people would not come back next week? <laughs> like, I just, I can't deal with that guy. I just can't deal with that guy. All right. The whole assembly responded, amen, and, the, and praised the Lord. The whole assembly responded, amen, and they praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. For the entire 12 years that I was governor of Judah, from the 20, 20th year to the 32nd year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, nor, neither I nor my officials drew on our official food allowance. That's pretty cool right there. They didn't even take all of their, their um, per diem. The former governors, in contrast, had laid heavy burdens on the people, demanding a daily ration of food and wine besides 40 pieces of silver. Even their assistants took advantage of the people. But because I feared God, I did not act that way. Some of you in your workplaces, and different settings are different, but some of you in your workplaces, you know that people are cheating people. You don't have to be a part of that. You don't have to be a part of that. Now, in some settings, if you're not, you'll get run out. But you don't have to be a part of something. You don't have to be a some, part of something that's um, immoral or is hurting people or whatever. And here's the reality, and I believe this, and I've experienced this myself in a couple ways. God will take care of you if you'll do the right thing. God will take care of you. But you've got to stand up and do the right thing. He said all these other guys were, were, 
taking advantage of him. I also devoted myself to working on the wall and refused to acquire any land. And I, requ- and I required all of my servants to spend time working on the wall. I asked for nothing, even though I regularly fed 150 Jewish officials at my table, besides all the visitors from other lands. The provisions I paid for each day included one ox, six choice sheeps of goats, large number of poultry, and every 10 days we need a large supply. Yet I refused to claim the governor's food allowance because the people already carried a heavy burden. I just had this discussion recently with somebody, um, a pastor that called me and said, hey, um, I need you to send me, um, I need you to send me like a, um, a salary package mentality. Uh, he's a new pastor at his church, and he said, um, they're, they're wanting to restructure the pay, give me a raise and do some things. He said, so they asked me, what do you want us to pay you? And he said, so help me out here. And I said, no. He said, what? I said, no. I said, you ought to try this on. I said, now, this is me talking. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to. I said, but this is how I've always thought. This is how I've always been wired. You can ask the pulpit committee when I came here. They'll tell you the same thing. Um, Say to them, you guys are the board. You decide. And I'll deal with whatever you decide. He says, well, what if I can't make it on what they pay me? I guess you have to take that chance, huh? And then he paused for me and he said, oh, it sounds like a faith thing. <laughs> I'm like, wow, doesn't it, though? Snuck that one in on you. I said, there's nothing wrong also. I don't think you're being wrong by giving them a, a, what you would consider a salary package and saying, please pay me this. I said, I don't think you're wrong by doing that either, Okay. Because they're asking. But just, just maybe try and just say, God, I'm going to put it in your hands. I know this, this is making some of you uncomfortable. If, if your boss came to you and said, what would you like us to pay you? You'd be like, well, I happen to have that already worked out. Right? I know it's a, it's a little bit different kind of concept, but what is it? When, let me say it this way. When do we actually just say, God, I'm just going to trust you? And what, what areas do we say that and what areas do we not say that? God, I'm just going to trust you. Do what you want to do, God. What about, what about the next time you get in an argument with your spouse? Why don't you just back off and say, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm the one wrong here. Forgive me. You're like, what? What if I'm not the one wrong? According to Ephesians chapter 5, you're supposed to present, specifically men, you're supposed to present your wife to yourself as perfect and spotless. I, I know I'm pushing in some areas, but when do we just say, God, I want to put you first in all things. I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to quibble. I'm not going to pick on things. I'm not going to go there. I do this all the time in my marriage. <laughs> you know, speaking of which, I have this scar right here. Um, the other day, I was just politely trying to, to go to the bathroom, and I start walking toward the bathroom, and my wife grabs my arm right here, digs her fingers into this scar, and pulls me across the room. I thought she was going to open up my scar. 
It hurt for hours after that. Nope. I told all that needs to be told. <laughs> You're just slower. She, her side of the bed is way on the other side of the room, and I wait till she gets right about there, and then I jump up and run in the bathroom. <laughs> I do it all the time. But that time she was pretty quick, and she caught me right here. That'll learn me. Guys, um, so here's where I want to leave some of this. God really does want us to, a couple of things, a few layers. God really wants us to listen when the Holy Spirit gets upset at us about some things. He does. And don't, don't be one of those wimpy Christians that thinks that God does not get upset at you. He does. The Holy Spirit will get irritated with you. And we, sometimes we build an idea. Oh, well, no, God doesn't. I mean, he's, he get, doesn't get angry. If you think God's not getting angry, you're not reading the Bible. He gets angry a lot. When the Holy Spirit is angry at us, and he tells us, I want you to change this, what should be our response? Change it. Repent and change it. If he says, this is an area I want to work on, don't hide from him. Don't move it around. Say, okay, God, work on it. I know that what I'm saying is easy to say and difficult to do. I get that. But, but do the best you can. And then I think there should be something within us sometimes that gets angry, righteously indignant uh, about stuff that Satan is trying to do to our friends and our neighbors and our family members. Fight for them. Fight for the people that, that uh, Jacob's talking about that have no Christian friends in, in countries. You don't know who they are, but the Lord does. Fight for them in prayer. Fight for your next-door neighbor. Fight for your spouse. Fight for your kids. Fight for your, your family. Fight for your coworkers. Get upset at Satan. He picks on people constantly, and you and I watch it happen sometimes and do nothing. That's not okay. We need to fight. We need to get upset. Because why? God really does want to do something. He wants to build our lives. He wants to build us up. In, in the faith. He wants to build us up in relationship to other people. And he wants us to build others up along the way. We got to do this. We got to be about it. So, how do we pray about this? I think that's a good starting place. Just stir us up. Just do, just do something, right? I mean, somewhere along the way, just to start. Just start somewhere. Just start a starting point. God, do something. Stir something. In my mind and my spirit, stir something. Maybe pray that God would convict us. Fasting really helps uh, uh, understanding conviction. The longer you fast, when you come off of the fast, things will look and feel and seem different. I'll tell you something to do. Go set a time frame. For some of you, may, a day may be difficult. But set a time frame, maybe a week or a month, and say, I'm not going to watch TV for a month. You'll be surprised at what TV is when you come back after that month. Say, I'm not going to get on uh, any social media for a month. If we said that to the teenagers, I think someone would literally drop dead right in the floor at that moment. But to say, let's go a month without social media. Guys, you might be surprised at how cleansing it can be in your spirit. And I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying social media is bad. I'm just saying sometimes we need cleansed. Ask the Lord to do something. Lord, Give me, work on this issue, work on this issue every day and pray about it every day and set a time frame. Every day for a week, you're going to pray for this issue. God, work on it and see what God does. 
You might be surprised. All right? Anything else we need to pray about? I mean, any, any other way we need to pray for this? Pray for obedience, yeah. A, a desire to be obedient too. You know, this is usually the way I pray stuff like that. First, I start out praying, Lord, I want to be obedient. And then after a while, I realize what I need to pray first is, Lord, I want to want to be obedient. Right? I think I want to, but then I think maybe I don't really want to. So, Lord, have me, give me a desire to want to. Right? Okay, let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. You, the, the grandeur of who you are, Lord, is just overwhelming.